Come heed me, my brothers. Come heed one and all. Don't brag about standing or you'll surely fall. You're shining your light and shine it you should, but you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. If you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood. You're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Now, I'm just curious. Just raise your hand if you know who wrote this. I didn't think so. These words were written by the great poet-theologian Johnny Cash. I mean, his 1977 album, The Rambler, it's wonderful, one of my favorites. And he was riffing, Johnny Cash, a you know, professed believer, follower of Jesus, he was riffing on a phrase that was originally attributed to the famous Boston physician poet, uh, and poet Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. And the argument nestled in this memorable phrase, you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, is this, that there are Christians who are so focused on heaven, they're so consumed with eternity that they've neglected to live as loving and caring and meaningful Christians here and now. That's the argument. They've, they've forgotten the importance of contributing to society in such a, a way that glorifies God and benefits others because their head is in the clouds, so to speak. They're so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. So the phrase locates a problem, right? Professing Christians who are uh, no earthly good. And then it gives the supposed reason for that problem. The reason is because their, their mind is so set on heaven. It's a catchy phrase, right? It's memorable. But the question is, is it true? As much as I love Johnny Cash, I'd have to say no, it's not. Now, now there are certainly Christians who have lost sight of what it means to lovingly serve their neighbor, right? To share Christ, to, to care for those in need. And I know that because I'm one of them, right? Each of us are, are guilty of losing sight of the mission and purpose God has called us to here and, and now. But the problem is not that we're so heavenly minded. In fact, I'd submit to you that the problem is quite the opposite. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, he says, If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. So Lewis is disagreeing with that premise that you're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And we, we can see this in history. That's what Lewis is saying, right? We see this in the lives of people like William Wilberforce, a politician who teamed up with Pastor John Newton to abolish the, the slave trade in England. We see this in missionaries like Amy Carmichael who not only proclaimed the gospel but displayed the gospel by rescuing children from, from peril and founding orphanages, right? And we can go on and on and on and on. So, so the phrase that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good is just not historically true. But it's also biblically untrue. And that, that brings us to this letter that we're starting to study this morning. Our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter. And this apostle is writing to a group of Christians 
in modern-day Turkey, and they are starting to be persecuted for their faith in Jesus, for their allegiance to Christ. And it's just starting, but it will turn into full-fledged, state-sanctioned persecution of Christians. And Peter, who himself was no stranger to persecution, is writing to exhort and encourage these believers. And here's what he doesn't say as we consider the message of the letter as a whole. He doesn't tell them, listen, life is hard, so hunker down, stick together, try to survive, lay low for a while, maybe go underground and just sort of wait until heaven. That's not his message. It's not one of retreat from the world. In the midst of persecution and hardship and suffering. Nor is his message the opposite. What he doesn't say is, listen, you know what? You know what would make this go a lot easier? If you just sort of soften the rough edges of Christianity a little bit. Maybe you can avoid some some persecution. So just downplay it a little bit. Maybe it all blow over. You can give in a little on these things. You don't have to be so blatant about your allegiance to Jesus over, over Caesar. No, he doesn't say that as well. It's not a message of retreat, but it's also not a message of full embrace of the world. So then what is mes- the message of First Peter in a nutshell? Well, he's exhorting his audience, first century Christians, and us to set our hope on heaven. And more importantly, the one who dwells there so that we may endure and live lives that are eternally significant here and now. That's the argument. In other words, sorry Johnny, sorry uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, be so heavenly minded, right? Have your mind so set on Christ and what he is promising you that's coming that you become an instrument of immense earthly good. That's 1 Peter in a nutshell. 1 Peter is a sojourner's guide to hope. We're the sojourners, well, as we'll see in a moment, we're the exiles. We're living here and now in a place that's not our home. But we are headed somewhere. And what will sustain and equip us for his purposes as we journey through this world as exiles is our ultimate hope in heaven, a clear vision of Jesus. So this morning we're looking at verses 1, 1 through 12, and if you heard it, it is jam-packed with with doctrine, right? Peter starts right out of the gate, but here's what I think he's doing here. I think he's laying a foundation for the rest of the book. So as we walk through these verses this morning, we're going to draw out four things that are going to be repeated points, repeated themes, repeated truths throughout the rest of the book. These are foundational truths that will help us become so heavenly minded that we become instruments of earthly good here and now. And here's what those are. Let me just tell you where we're headed. First, know who you are, verses 1 through 3. Second, rest in your future inheritance, verses 4 through 5. Third, embrace God's purpose in your suffering, Verses 6 through 9. And fourth and finally, marvel at the glories of the gospel. Verses 10 through 12. Know who you are, rest in your future inheritance, embrace God's purpose in your suffering, and marvel at the glories of the gospel. So number one, know who you are. Look at verse 1. Peter, it's the author, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's the authority from God, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter begins 
by establishing his God-given authority as an apostle, identifying himself, then he uses this interesting title for his readers, and it's very, very intentional. He says, you are elect exiles. So he's already, right out the gate, verse 1, reminding them of their identity in Christ. Elect exiles, what does that mean? Well, let's break down each word. First, you are Christian You are elect. That word simply means chosen. We have an entire sermon on the doctrine of election that Pastor Clint preached in our uh, Doctrines of Grace series back in November, December. You can go listen online. So we won't dig into the, the depths of what this means here, but it's important to note that when biblical authors use this word to speak of God choosing sinners like us, electing sinners like us, it always emphasizes relational intimacy. In other words, being chosen by God is connected to being loved by God. Ephesians 1 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That's what it means to be chosen by God. It's also important to note this Old Testament imagery. Peter's going to do this time and time again through this book. He's going to lean on Old Testament imagery to teach us. Israel was God's chosen nation. Chosen by God, set apart for his purposes in this world through which the Savior would come. So the elect are those lovingly chosen by God. That's the identity. And it's meant to bring comfort to weary Christians. Don't lose heart. Don't think that what is most important to you, your relationship with me, God says, can be lost. I have chosen you in love. I will never leave you or forsake you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are chosen by God, elected by him. But Then he uses this other word, exiles. You see, If we follow this picture of Israel's chosen nation in the Old Testament, we see that Israel turned away from God. We see this in the days of the kings. And as a result of their idolatry and ignoring God's commands, despite countless warnings, they did not repent and turn to him. So eventually what happened? They're exiled to Babylon and Assyria, to a nation that is not theirs, among a people who do not know God. As a result of their sin. So here's what Peter is doing with this phrase in this word exiles. He is taking that idea and he is reinterpreting that term and applying it to the church. So Israel was chosen by God as God's chosen nation. They were also exiled from their land when they disobeyed. We too as Christians, the church, we are elect exiles. But there's a major difference here. We're not considered exiles because of our sin, as Israel was. We are exiles in this world because of our identity with Christ. That's what Peter wants us to know. The Apostle Paul summarizes this well for us when he writes in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is, where? It is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we are elect exiles, and, and as, as, as elect exiles, Peter goes on to tell us, there's more to your identity, elect exiles, you also belong to the triune God. Look at verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Father, Spirit, Son. It's as if Peter is saying, just, just in case you were wondering who's behind all of this, who's behind you being chosen, who's behind you being in exile where you live now, it's the triune God, the eternal three in one. Your identity, Christian, my identity, my, our salvation was planned by the Father. That's what Peter says in verse 2. It was applied by the Holy Spirit and it was accomplished by the Son. You see that? Summary of rich Trinitarian doctrine for the Christian. But it's not just this heady reality. He's saying, that's who you are. You are in him. That's who did this. And what is this triune God? Verse 3, this God is blessed. He is happy. He is worthy of glory and honor and praise. Peter, what he does here is he essentially breaks out into worship as he starts thinking about what it means to be an elect exile who has been saved by the triune God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He can barely contain himself. Right? We tend to think theology is the boring stuff and worship is the fun stuff. Peter, and by the way, the entire Bible says, nope, those two always go together. I'm about to teach you some rich, important doctrine, but it always is meant to lead to worship of the blessed God. So he says, here's who you are, elect exiles. Here's who God is, the triune God, and you belong to him. Blessed be his name. And what has he done? He's caused you to be born again. He, he regenerated you, meaning you were spiritually dead and now you're alive. You didn't do it because dead people can't raise themselves to life. You were born again and you didn't deserve it, Peter says. It was according to his mercy that he caused you to be born again. You see, when you become a Christian... You're united to Christ by faith so that as Christ died, remember Good Friday, Easter, last week? We celebrate that every Sunday. As Christ died, putting sin to death, rising to life, so we too who believe in him, we die to the old self and we are raised to a new and living hope through the resurrection. Peter is saying the doctrine of the resurrection is everyday life stuff. Because Christ has been raised, so you who are in him have been raised. And that hope is not just the sort of distant hope, like it's going to matter someday. No, it's a living hope because Christ is a living Savior. It matters now. So the foundation for, for everything Peter tells us in this letter is here, in this point, our identity in him. If, if our identity is not in Christ, this is so important, nothing else from this point on is going to matter to you. 
If we're not born again, then all of the counsel that Peter gives us, and he's going to give us some great practical counsel, but all of it, if we are not born again to a living hope, if we are not elect exiles, if we're not in him, it will be useless to you if you don't have the, the identity. It'd be about as useless as me after church, going home, putting on my, my Xander Bogarts jersey and heading down to Fenway and asking Alex Cora, do you think I can, you know, slide into the lineup today for the 110 game? One, I never get that far, right? They'd stop me and I never get to Cora, but that would be silly. Why? Because I'm not on the team, right? I can't play the game because I'm not on the team. Friends, if we are not in Christ by faith, if we are not born again, if we are not resurrected to the living hope that is in Christ, then all of the practical stuff, all of the here's how you live stuff will be useless to us. This is foundational. Know who you are. So the first Christian, the first question for us this morning is this, are you a Christian? Have you been born again to a living hope? Have you forsaken sin and self-rule? Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying are you perfect. I'm not saying do you have decent church attendance. I'm not saying can you articulate the doctrine of justification to me. You can have all of those things and be lost as a kite spiritually. What I'm saying is have you placed your hope and faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins? If so, You are an elect exile. You're chosen by God. You belong to the triune God who planned your salvation, accomplished it through Christ, applied it through the Holy Spirit. And if that's true, you can endure the greatest of trials and hardships that will come. A few months ago, I got a kayak and, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pond fishing guy. I love pond fishing. But I wanted to up my pond fishing game from standing along the bank to actually getting into Hardy Pond where I, near where I live and finding some of the, the good fishing holes. So I got a kayak. And I was talking to um, my father-in-law, and he's my bass fishing sensei. Okay? And so he knows all, all, he knows all things bass fishing. And he said, you know, hey, listen, make sure you get an anchor. And I thought, my first thought was an anchor. It's a kayak, right? It's like seven feet long. Why do I need an anchor? It's not the Mayflower, right? I'm not crossing the Atlantic. I'm just sort of paddling around the pond. He said, no, no, listen. Here's why it's so important. If you don't have an anchor, when you stop to fish, you'll, you won't even notice it, but you'll slowly start drifting, and then you'll have to put down the pole and paddle back to where you are and start fishing again. But if you drop the anchor, your hands are free to fish. They're free for you to cast. Our identity in Christ, knowing who we are and whose we are, those are the anchors for us so that when the wind comes, and the wind will come, the suffering will come, the persecution will come, the opposition will come, the distraction from the worlds will come, the tides of culture will shift, but when it comes, we will be so anchored in him that we'll be free to do what he's called us to do in the here and now. Our identity in Christ is an anchor for the soul. 
Because we're confident that we're chosen, loved, set apart, born again, our hope is in him. We'll be able to walk as obedience, walk in obedience as exiles. So that's number one, know who you are. Number two, rest in your future inheritance. So after looking back to, to remind us of what God has, has done to make us his, Peter then in verse 4, he starts looking forward. He says, we have been born again, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So once again, Peter is picking up on an Old Testament idea, and he does this with the word inheritance. You guys thought we were finished with Genesis, right? (laughs) We're not. Here we are, back in, in Genesis. Time and time again, what did we see through that book? We saw this guarantee from God to his chosen people of an inheritance. And that inheritance was specifically, among other things, was land, right? It was a physical inheritance. Canaan, the promised land. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, your descendants will receive this land. Yet even they knew... Even the patriarchs, as they're hearing this, this promise, they knew that the promise was always more than about just this sliver of land in the Middle East. Because God told them, Genesis 17, 8, And I will give you, Abraham, and to your offspring, after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for what? An everlasting possession. See that? That inheritance has eternity in mind. See, if, if their hope, Israel, was, was only in a piece of physical land, then it was misplaced and nearsighted. How do we know this? Well, well, Peter says our true inheritance is imperishable. Israel lost the land. All land will one day perish. Peter also says it's undefiled, meaning it's incorruptible. But guess what? Israel corrupted the land with their sin. That's why they were exiled, right? Peter says it's unfading, meaning this inheritance is going to last forever. But friends, every nation, every government, and by the way, every bank account and every career and every ounce of physical strength will one day fade away. So this this inheritance is about more than just this land. It always has been. So Peter then counsels Christians who are suffering, and here's how he does this. He doesn't give the sort of typical Western American encouragement. We tend to just say, you know what, just stick it out. This too shall pass, right? You're going to get through this. The suffering will stop soon. Peter does not say that. In fact, friends, nowhere in the Bible promises you and I that if we follow Christ, Life will go smoothly for you. In fact, it actually promises the complete opposite. Paul says anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we shouldn't be surprised when, as Peter's audience, we face sufferings of of various kinds, as he'll say in a moment, but also when the culture we live in becomes increasingly more hostile toward Christianity. That's the norm. The Bible prepared us for this. But Peter instead says this, Brothers and sisters, I know that living faithfully for Jesus in an increasingly difficult place 
is tough. I know that life in a fallen world is difficult. But your future is bright. You're a a child of the king, so you will inherit essentially God himself. That's your inheritance. And you will experience the fullness of joy forevermore. So take heart and endure in the here and now. You can rest in your future inheritance in such a way that will help you endure in the here and now. But there's another lesson for us here, and I think this is perhaps more, I was praying about this this week. The reality is we, we don't face persecution yet, right? Our struggle is more that we are affluent as followers of Jesus. Right? That's, that's who we are. We live in relative comfort as Christians. We can still worship freely as we're doing right now. None of us were wondering, will I be arrested if I worship Jesus this morning? Likewise, it's so easy for us to to distract ourselves, entertain ourselves, and comfort ourselves out of an eternal vision of our inheritance. And so we, we tend to fix our hope on the temporal, trivial things that are perishable and fading. So much so that we become of no earthly good. But here's what's interesting about this this message of our inheritance. It's really the same to both the suffering Christian and to the affluent, comfortable Christian, right? What is he saying? Know your future inheritance and rest in that, not in the comforts of this world. So some of us who are suffering, we need this to bring us hope right now. But others of us who are comfortable, we need this promise to shake us up. And to repent of how distracted we are by the things of this world. So we can rest in our future inheritance. A good practical question to ask yourself is, in what ways am I nearsighted when it comes to the inheritance of heaven? How many of you are nearsighted here? So when I take these glasses off, Jimmy, right here, right? When I take these glasses off, I can't see any of you, right? I can see everything here just fine. Everything up close is fine. But all of you are just blurry right now. I can see what's near, but not what's far off. Well, friends, we can become spiritually nearsighted, right? So focused on the here and now that we're not thinking about eternity. We're spiritually nearsighted when we think, for example, how can I live comfortably in the here and now? That's our primary question. Instead of, which is eternally focused, how can I love and gospel my neighbor? Who will, by the way, spend eternity either away from God or with him. Or we're spiritually nearsighted when we think, how, how can I make my child behave? Parents, you're like, mm, amen, right? Of course we want our children to behave, but is that, is that our ultimate desire? That's a, that's a nearsighted desire. Our ultimate desire should be, God, how can I help my children grow and know Christ? Because they'll be spending eternity with him, we pray. Or we're spiritually nearsighted when we think, you know, how can I work for the weekend? That's the purpose of working hard. That's the purpose of my career so I can just enjoy the benefits of my labors instead of how can I work in such a way that I use what God gives me for the advancement of his kingdom which will last forever. Right? We're spiritually nearsighted when we think how can I benefit myself in the here and now but when our eyes are fixed on our inheritance with Christ in heaven 
we ask in everything, how can I live and, and serve and invest my life in things that will last forever? Right? Whether we're in the throes of suffering or whether we're experiencing the blessings of this life. That should be our goal. That's the result of resting in our inheritance. And this, this will also help us with number three. Move on to number three. Embrace God's purpose in your suffering. So first, know who you are. Number two, rest in your future inheritance. And number three, embrace God's purpose in your suffering. Verse six, Peter then says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, would be found a result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Peter says, in this you rejoice, that this in verse 6, I think this is important to note, it's not the suffering itself. The this in verse 6 refers to the salvation that he's been talking about thus far. So you rejoice in your salvation, your regeneration, your identity in Christ, your eternal inheritance, right? Those are things that bring about joy. But here's the problem that Peter reminds us of. There's a threat to this joy, and it is the grief of suffering. I think that's an important phrase that Peter uses because one, one um, misunderstanding of suffering I think Christians often have is, oh, Jesus is coming back, so suffering's no big deal. But that's not what Peter says. He says these things grieve you. It's a big deal. Suffering, various trials, they lead us to grieve. So it's a threat to our, our joy, right? In our, in our Genesis series, we spent a lot of time really working through, we didn't plan this, but in God's providence, a, a doctrine of suffering as we studied the life and, min, and ministry of Joseph, right? And so we know that God has a purpose in suffering. That's what we saw in Joseph's life. He brings good from it. And this is seen most clearly, by the way, on the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you have a hard time with how does good come from suffering, there's so many things we can talk about there, but for this morning's sake, let me just remind you that the center of Christianity is simultaneously the greatest act of suffering, right? Christ dying for sinful humans, and the greatest act of loving goodness, God accomplishing salvation for us. So the, the cross is a paradigm for us of how we can see that good comes from suffering. Tim Keller writes, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. I think that's what Peter is pointing us to here. That's his conviction. Because of your inheritance and your future salvation, because it's so secure, you can rejoice in the midst of grievous sufferings here and now. And he gives us three reasons for this. First, he tells us that suffering is only temporary. He says, now for a little while in verse 6. Now we read that phrase, I'll be honest, when, I, when you first initially read that phrase, I think, really? A little while? Some of you have been through or in seasons of suffering that have felt like eternity. Right? They seem unending in your life. Or maybe you think the bigger picture, you consider the, the history of the world, the wars, the pain, the sickness, the hatred, and you... Or you think of the church in places like North Korea or Afghanistan where death and imprisonment are everyday realities. 
and possibilities for Christians. And it's been like that for decades. And then you hear Peter say, it's just going to be a little while. Now, is, is he being trite here? Is he like Job's friends as he's in the midst of suffering and they try to help, but they're really just giving bad advice? No, I, I don't think so. He's not just shrugging his shoulders saying, no, it, it's just going to be a little while. He has this eternal inheritance, those prescription glasses on, right? He's preparing them for the suffering that's coming. And he's saying, listen, church, compared to an eternity of imperishable, undefiled, unfading, impenetrable joy in Christ, your lifetime of suffering is just a little while. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So compared to eternity, all of our sufferings, for those of us who are in Christ, are just a little while. That's meant to give us hope. But he also goes on to say that suffering strengthens our faith. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested, though it is tested by fire. So he's using an illustration here of the purification of gold. For a, for a chunk of gold to, to be purified, a goldsmith would need to, to put the gold through a process called smelting. Intense heat right, is used to, to melt the gold down. And what would happen is all of the, the impurities that are in there, other metals, rocks, sand, whatever, what's called dross would then rise to the top and be removed and it would leave gold in its purest form. This is actually, this imagery is one of the favorites of the prophets. And listen to what, they, what, what Isaiah says in chapter 1. He talks about how the dross represents the impurities of our, our sin. I will turn my hand against you, this is God speaking through Isaiah, and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors at the, at, as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So Peter's saying that picture of intense heat, like refining gold, that's what suffering is like for you, Christian. You're being refined. All of the, the dross of your sin is being melted away. And guess what? Even 24 karat gold will one day burn up. But Peter tells us, your precious faith will never burn up. It will one day be turned to sight. That helps us as Christians see God's purpose in our suffering. It doesn't mean, don't mishear me, what he's not saying is you're suffering as a direct result of some sin you've committed. That may or may not be the case. But what he is saying is every kind of various trial you face... You can be confident, Christian, that God is using that to, to bring out the dross of sin and impurity because he loves you and he is forming you into this precious gold. Your faith will one day be complete. And then he tells us at the end of verse 7 that all of this, all of our sufferings will result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One day, you and I, Christian, will look back on all our sufferings 
all the pain, all the struggles, all the burdens of temptation, and they will become monuments of praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Because we'll look back and see, wow, in the darkest times, look how God sustained me. Look how he shaped me to bring me to this place. All glory be to God. And the result, Peter says, is so now we rejoice with inexpressible joy. That's cause to rejoice, not just then, you don't have to wait, but in the here and now. So friends, be confident, be convinced that God has a good purpose for you in your suffering. And then lastly, marvel at the glories of the gospel. Verses 10 through 12. Just be honest, it's just preacher's honesty. At first when I read this, I thought, I don't want to preach this part. Clint can do it next week. It doesn't seem to fit, right? but it does fit. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now let's stop right there because here's what Peter's doing. He's giving us a mini theology of the Bible. He's saying, hey, listen, all of this that I've just talked about, the Old Testament prophets, uh, they prophesied about this. They didn't fully understand what was coming, but they knew the Messiah, the promised one, the Savior would come and reverse the curse of sin and defeat the enemy. And they knew, Peter says, they would bring that, that it was about grace. That was the message. And it wasn't their idea, Peter reminds us. The Spirit of Christ was in them. You see, the Old Testament isn't merely history, poetry, apocalyptic literature from an ancient people. It is certainly that, but it is more. According to Peter, this is his doctrine of the Old Testament. It's all of those things, but ultimately, it's the God-breathed revelation of grace through Jesus Christ. He's saying that about the Old Testament. More specifically, Peter tells us in verse 11 that the Old Testament prophets predicted two things. The sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. And Jesus himself affirms this after his resurrection in Luke 24. He's walking with the disciples along the seven-mile road to Emmaus, and they don't yet realize it's him, but they're discouraged. They're suffering because they think their Lord is dead forever. And Jesus says to them in verses 25, through 27, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now listen to what the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? That's what Peter's talking about. Suffering, then glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So friends, the Old Testament... According to Jesus, according to Peter, is the promise of Jesus made. And the message is that suffering comes first and then glory. The New Testament is the promise of Jesus kept. That's what he goes on to say in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you first century Christians, also us, and these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit 
sent from heaven. So here's this theology of the Bible continuing. Just as the Spirit filled the human authors of the Old Testament, so it filled the apostles of the New Testament. And the good news, when it was preached to you, the gospel was fulfilled and Christ proclaimed. That's how we know about all this. That's our sure standing of this. The Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God's very word to you and I. It's the message of Christ. It's the pattern, and the pattern of Scripture has always been suffering, then glory. That's what Christ was, it was prophesied of him. That's what he accomplished. And here's the encouragement to the, the listeners and to us. It's a reminder to us that we can't skip the suffering to get to the glory. And then he ends this section by telling us that these things, these graces of the gospel revealed to us in the scripture are, end of verse 12, things into which angels long to look. You could say these angels marvel at these glories of the gospel that we get to participate in. Now I want you to think, I always thought this was a weird verse, but I want you to think about it for a moment. The angels announced the birth of Christ. Heavens opened up, they were there. The angels sustained Christ in the wilderness after his temptation. They ministered to him. The angels were comforting him in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his death on the cross. The angels were there and pushed back the stone on Easter morning, the angels accompanied Jesus as he ascended into heaven. They had that kind of front row seat to the glories of Jesus' ministry. Yet, we're told here that they marvel at what we get to experience. That's shocking. They are in, at this moment, unhindered presence with Jesus. They look at the gospel and they marvel at it. What are they missing? Friends, the answer is this, the grace of Jesus Christ. Because they're not sinners, they're not sufferers like us, they can't taste the subsequent glories. They know only glory. They can sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, but they cannot sing like we can, amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. So they look at it and they marvel at what we get to experience. And friends, here's the logic. If the angels in heaven marvel at Christ and his gospel as observers, how much more should you and I marvel at his grace the inheritance, the identity, the joy that we have, not as observers, but as recipients. H.B. Charles put it this way, commenting on this verse. He said, we're tempted to be preoccupied with the things that the angels in heaven couldn't care less about. So in closing, as we journey through this letter, we're going to receive some wonderful, concrete, practical wisdom for how to live on mission. For how to live as a family, how to relate to spouses, how to relate to unbelievers, those who oppose the gospel, how to fight holiness. We're going to learn all of those things. But do you notice, 
Don't lose sight of this. Peter's first and foundational concern is that we marvel at the person and work of Christ and what he's done for us and who we are in him and at the future inheritance he has secured and at the glories he has brought about through his suffering. So friends, that's the one application for us. Are you marveling in faith at what Christ has done? And if we do, if we do, we will be so heavenly minded that we become instruments of immense earthly good in the here and now. Let's pray together.